out, just raise up your hand real quick. If you don't own a copy or you don't like your copy, hey, take it. It's yours. Put your name on it. Bring it back. Do not collect 12, all right? Just, just take the one, enjoy it. If not, leave it on the seat, and we'll be thrilled to pick it up at the end. Now, we do have a teaching team uh, here, and we are thrilled to start our new series with a young stud muffin in all of his form, none other than Matt Karsh. Will you join him? Welcome, Matty Karsh. I definitely think that's the first time I've ever been publicly called a stud muffin. Thank you, Jose. Gluten-free. Gluten-free stud muffin, yes. I do eat gluten-free, and I am a vegan, too, so please don't hold that against me. Um, oh, I got booze? Were those booze from some people? Wow. That's a good start. Um, Hey, so like Jose said, my name is Matt, and uh, we get to start a new teaching series this week. If you don't have a Bible, keep your hand raised. We're going we're gonna to be all over the scriptures this morning. But before we get started, let's pray together and dig in. God, we thank you for uh, everything that you've done, um, both in our lives individually and the fact that we woke up this morning and we have breath, breath in our lungs as a gift from you. And... Uh, God, we're all at different places in that. Some of us are filled with joy at the moment, and some of us are filled with sorrow at the moment. But we come together and dedicate this next little time to um, digging into Scripture, which you've revealed yourself in. And you teach us about yourself, and you teach us about the world, and you teach us about our, our own selves. Uh, and God, would you reveal uh, who you are and what you've done through the text and through my words, and would you, would you speak through me in whatever way you see fit and... Uh, God, we lift up this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Cool, so uh, who likes Charlie Brown Christmas? Raise your hand. Okay, most people. Okay, Charlie Brown Christmas is classic, right? Uh, Charlie Brown goes, doesn't anyone know what Christmas is all about? And Linus like grabs his blanket and he walks out on stage and he lights, please. And he starts quoting from Luke 2. And we, humor me, we're going to start in the same place that Linus does, okay? Luke 2. Turn, turn your Bibles to Luke 2. It's a great Christmas story. Luke is a historian, and so he gives us a whole lot of details about Jesus' birth. And we're going to start in the exact same place Linus does. It's in verse 8. So Luke 2, 8, if you want to read along. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Okay, so we're just going to pause right there. So we keep talking about Christmas. Everybody knows it's Christmas season. The problem that we have when we read something like this is that we read verse 11, and we just kind of glance over and go, that's cool, town of David, Lord, Savior, Messiah, and then we just keep reading. We don't really catch what's happening here and the power of these words and these concepts. The angels are speaking to the shepherds. Because when the shepherds would have heard those words, they would have had, their eyes just would have popped out of their sockets. God is fulfilling his promise. They would have been, been captivated by the words that the angels are using because they had weight and they had meaning. When we approach Christmas, what we want to do is kind of get in that same mindset of the shepherds. We want, to, we want to hear what the shepherds would have heard, and we want to feel what the shepherds would have felt. 
Because by the time that Jesus comes on the scene, and Luke tells us about it in Luke 2, for thousands of years, for generations, the nation of Israel was waiting and waiting for God to fulfill his promises. Because God had made promises to the nation of Israel, and they were waiting. So when Jesus comes, gets born, and there's an announcement of his birth, and the title of Savior, Lord, and Messiah get used, they're, they're meaningful. They're not just throwaway lines that, oh, anybody gets called Savior, Lord, and Messiah. No, this, they're very specific, and they're very meaningful. And so what we need to ask ourselves is, well, well why the city of David? Why does that matter? Why, does, it, does it even matter that he's called Savior, Lord, and Messiah? And it does. And so what we want to do over these next three weeks in, in going through this series called The Promise is look at what the promise is. Because in order to understand what the shepherds would have felt and what they would have heard, we have to understand what the promise is and what it entails. And then for us, as a group of people who live in 2014, we have to understand, okay, what's our place in the story? Because Jesus has come, and we get to rejoice in that along with the shepherds. We get to be super happy. We get to celebrate Christmas. But we also, there's another side to it because we're waiting for Jesus to come again. So we kind of get stuck in the middle of this. And we got to figure out what does that mean for us as people who are kind of like the shepherds, but also in a very different place. So in order to understand the promise of Scripture, we have to go the, all the way back to the beginning. So if you have Bible, turn to Genesis 1.1. The very beginning, first book of the Bible, first verse. Go to the table of contents, turn right. Okay, found it. All right, so Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. Okay. So, what we just want to get in our minds is the fact that God is a creator. He makes things. And if we read on, what we don't have time for is read all through Genesis 1 and 2, God also makes humanity. And God is with humanity in the garden. He's with them. So God created humanity both uh, to be with him in relationship with him, but also for a purpose. And if you know the story and you've read it before, Genesis 1 and 2 are really good. Humanity gets to be with God and everything's going great. But then we get to Genesis 3 and things go not so well. There is, we're introduced to a character called the serpent. Um, he's referred to uh, as a snake or as a serpent, depending on your translation. And when you read or hear serpent or snake, don't think uh, like slithery thing on the ground, but it's symbolic. Um, so we, we find out later in scripture that the serpent is actually Satan. And Satan tempts humanity into, say, did God really say that? He tempts humanity into disbelieving and distrusting God. So we get three chapters in the story and humanity has this option. We can either trust God who made us and has been with us, or we can go, nah, I don't really believe, believe what he has to say. I'm going I'm I'm to disobey anyways. And you know the story. Humanity disobeys. They go with the serpent instead of with God. And then, by the time we get to the middle of Genesis 3, God is pronouncing the consequences and the, the repercussions of humanity's sin. So what we just want to read is Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, tempt the humans, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So it's a statement of humiliation. Verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head 
and you will strike his heel. Okay, so for time's sake, we're just going to look at verse 15. And the word enmity is kind of interesting because we don't really use it in English a whole lot. I've, I don't think I've ever used enmity in a, in a conversation. Uh, but what it means, is it's describing a hatred. It's describing the, the feeling that one country who's at war with another country, that's enmity. And so what, what God is saying here is that the offspring of the serpent and the serpent himself will be enemies of the woman and her offspring. Now, in reading in English, the word offspring doesn't really pop off the page to us, right? We just think descendants. But what we have to understand is a little bit of the Hebrew language in order to understand why this is so fascinating linguistically. So, Hebrew lesson, put your Hebrew hat on, we're going to learn a Hebrew word. Cool? Awesome. So, the Hebrew word for offspring is zerah. And specifically, uh, it means seed, and throughout scripture, this word zerah describes like a seed, something you'd plant in the ground, and it would grow, in, grow into a plant. Uh, but it also describes offspring, so children. And throughout scripture, seed is something that comes from a man. It, it does not come from a woman in, uh, in the Hebrew language. Seed is something that comes from a man. So when we see that it's the seed of the woman in view, it should kind of like, well, that's weird. We would expect, because that's the way it is throughout all of scripture, that the seed would come from the man, but it actually comes from the woman. And then, uh, notice too what happens to the seed. The seed and the serpent, and the, the seed as the offspring of the woman and the serpent have this interesting relationship. Uh, the language change, changes in 3.15. It says, uh, he, uh, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head. Okay, so offspring... It's, it's singular in form, but it can be m multiple in meaning, right? So you can throw a seed or you can throw multiple seed in Hebrew. But then it changes to he. So it, it gets narrowed down. It's not just a group of descendants, but it's, it's a specific he who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And it's this crush the head, strike the heel. So uh, one is clearly more strong than the other. Crushing a head is, is more powerful than striking a heel. But again, if what we're talking about is not like a garter snake or like, um, which apparently in Oregon you say gardener snake. It could be garter snake, gardener snake. It's not just a simple little harmless little animal. But what we're talking about is something way more menacing than that. And so striking the heel, it's, it's actually painful. There's, there's something with that. But one is clearly way more powerful than the other. Why does any of that matter? When we open up scripture, page one, we see humanity is made in relationship with God for a purpose. And that's meaningful. And that helps us understand who we are. But we also understand what's going on in the world around us. Because we open up and we see there's a serpent in the garden. There's actually enmity. We live in the middle of like a cosmic battle. Which can sound kind of weird. But that's the attitude of scripture is that that there is a serpent who has enmity, is an enemy of the woman and her offspring, humanity. And specifically, one offspring, one seed. What we see in Genesis 3.15 is what God does in response to human sin. Okay, so humans disobey God, and then what does God do immediately afterwards? God, God initiates something. He gives a promise. He, give, he doesn't say, okay, fine, I'm just going to wipe you off the face of the earth. I'm going to start over. No, he gives a promise of what's going to happen. 
So in Genesis 3.15, which we have a slide of this, Genesis 3.15 is the first promise from God as to what he's going to do about sin and evil in the world. God is not okay with sin and evil staying in the world, and so he initiates a process to get rid of it, and that first promise we get of it is in Genesis 3.15. And we get, It's just a foggy picture, though, right? We, there's no real specifics. It's some guy at some point in some time is going to crush the head of the serpent. That's all the information we get here in Genesis 3. But if we read on, which we're going to do, if you flip to Genesis 12, we get a little bit more information about who this seed is. So Genesis 12, by the t- if you read Genesis 1 through 11, uh, so you read Genesis 1, okay, human sin, bad stuff happens. But then you read from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11, it gets worse and worse and worse. Humanity gets worse and worse and worse, and God judges, God interacts with humanity, and then it gets worse and worse again. And by the time that you get to Genesis 12, you're kind of thinking to yourself, how is any of this going to get better? And then God selects a man named Abram. And we don't really know anything about Abram, but in the midst of all this sin and rebellion and wickedness, God enters into it again, and in Genesis 12 gives another promise. So let's read in Genesis 12, 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, so what we're getting here in in Genesis chapter 12 is a bit of a clarification At first, we just get this promise of the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then in Genesis 12, and then if you read on in verse 7, or if you read on in chapter 15 and chapter 16, the promise is to Abraham and to his offspring. And guess what Hebrew word it it is? Zerah. So the promise gets passed along from Genesis 3, just the seed of the woman, and then it gets clarified that it's actually going to be from Abram's line. Abram gets later named Abraham. So the promise gets kind of passed down. And, and notice what, what God says to him is, Abram, leave everything you've ever known because I'm going to do something with you and your family. I'm going to bless you, but it's not just for your good. It's actually for the good of all nations. You're going you're gonna to be blessed, but it's so that you can pass it along to every human being in the world. And that's going to happen through your offspring. So to, to just looking backward, in Genesis 3, we get this promise looking forward that a seed is going to come and is going to do away with sin and evil in the world. And then we move forward to Genesis 12, and we get this promise that the entire world is going to be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. And, and the whole book of Genesis is really just generations, a bunch of generations. And by the time that we get to the end of Genesis, you have Abram's grandson and his great-grandsons, so Joseph, Benjamin, Reuben, the whole lot of them, right? We're not going to turn there, but if you want to write this down, Genesis 49, what happens is the, the, the promise gets passed along again. So it starts at the seed of the woman, and then it goes to the seed of Abraham, and then it goes to uh, a family of a guy named Judah. So in Genesis 49, we have a little slide of a little, the flow so it starts with the seed of the woman, the promise goes to the woman. Then it goes to Abraham and his offspring. And then we get to Genesis 49, and a guy named Judah, who is Abram's great-grandson, 
uh, he's told that a king is going to come out of your line. And, and not just any king, but he's going to be a king who has an everlasting kingdom, and he's going to have the obedience of all the nations. So it's universal in scope and everlasting. So it's not just he's going to be a king in some small, some small country, but it's a big idea. And so the promise gets passed along again, and the promise kind of gets filled in. So not only is the serpent going to be crushed, but the whole world is going to be blessed, and there's going to be a king who's the rightful king of the whole world, and he's going to have the obedience of the nations. We're going to flip forward one more passage in, in Deuteronomy 34. One of, the, one of the pictures that gets used to describe how this promise gets passed along, it's like looking through binoculars. Uh, you're looking at a foggy picture. If you look, look through binoculars, and you're like, I don't know who was using these before me, and you have to click them all the way over. It's like we're looking at a really foggy picture, and every couple of pages, we get a click one more focus of what we're looking at. And for us, it's every couple of pages. We can just flip over and, cool, we get to learn more about the promise. But imagine if you were living in Israel at the time. These are generations. These are years. These are lives. This is a long time of waiting for the promise to either be fulfilled or maybe clarified a little bit further. And by the time that we get all the way to Deuteronomy 34, if you know the story, so Israel has gone to Egypt and they've been in slavery in Egypt, and then there's a guy named Moses who helps them come out of slavery in Egypt and leads the whole nation of Israel. And Deuteronomy 34 is another kind of clarification, another example of what God is going to do with his people. So Moses is a leader of Israel, and one of the times when he's addressing the whole nation, which this is in Deuteronomy 18, if you want to write it down, Deuteronomy 18, he tells the whole nation of Israel, hey, I'm your leader now, and I'm a prophet now because I, I go in between God and all of you. Moses talking. And says, but I'm not going to be around forever, and God is going to raise up another prophet like me who you should listen to. That happens in Deuteronomy 18. Okay, then life goes on. Moses dies, and he has a successor named Joshua. And Joshua comes into leadership over Israel, and by the time we get to Deuteronomy 34, Moses has died and Joshua is the leader. But we're going to read in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 34, which is the last little bit of all of the Torah. So Deuteronomy 34:10. Remember, Moses is dead and Joshua's already taken charge. And then we have this interesting kind of editorial note at the very end of the book. It says, Since then... No prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the, the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And the book ends. Kind of a cliffhanger, right? So in Deuteronomy 18, we get this promise, there's going to be a prophet like Moses, and then you go, to, Moses dies, and Moses' successor takes charge. No prophet. Still hasn't come yet. So what we're looking at is throughout all of the Torah. So we're, we're doing three weeks on the promise. This, this first week, we're just looking at the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. Which, if you're, do you guys remember back to the beginning of the Psalm series, Jose talked about the Hebrew Tanakh? Yep, some people, Okay. So the Hebrew Bible is broken, out, broken down into three parts. Tanakh, 
uh, Torah, Netuvim, Ketuvim. And the very first part is the Torah, which is five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was really fast. But the beginning of Genesis, we get a promise. So, so he, God creates humanity. Everything's great for two chapters. And then humanity sins, and then there's a promise looking, looking forward. Okay, and then you fast forward all the way, all the way to Deuteronomy 34, the very end of the Torah, and there's still the promise looking forward. So they're still waiting for someone. And there's all kinds of stuff in between that we don't have time to do. We could spend days on this. We could look at Numbers 24. We can look at all these examples of how the promise gets passed along and how there's little prophecies and little hints. What's this guy going to be like? Who is he? What's, it, what's this promise? How's God going to fulfill this promise? But it's interesting that if you look at the entire book, the first five, or the first section, the first five books of the Bible, there's a promise at the beginning pointing forward and there's a promise at the end pointing forward saying he hasn't come yet. And that's kind of the question you're left hanging in Deuteronomy 34. What's this guy going to be like? Who, who is he? What, what's going to happen? The, the whole promise of God blessing the entire world, how's he going to do that? Who's the king who's, who's got the obedience of the nations and is the rightful king? Who, how is God going to do that? How is God going to crush the head of the serpent? Who's this seed? What, what, is, what is going on here? And so you have generations and generations waiting for the fulfillment of this promise. And what we'll look at over the next couple weeks is how people are waiting all the way through Malachi, all of the prophets, they're waiting, pointing forward. And all the way through the end of Chronicles, all of the historical writings going, the rightful king isn't here yet. So there's just a whole lot of waiting. So when we read, along with Linus, the announcement of Jesus' birth, these words have a whole lot of meaning. And imagine if you're one of those shepherds. who You've, you've heard the story passed down from your like great, 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 great grandparents who've been waiting and hoping. So in, in Luke's pronouncement, in the angel's pronouncement recorded by Luke, today in the town of David, that's significant. A savior, that's significant has been born to you. He's the Messiah. That's significant. The Lord, that's significant. So it's interesting because Moses was called a savior because he led the people out of slavery. So the, the idea is that there was going to be another savior like Moses because Moses promised there was going to be another prophet like him. So there was going to be another savior. And this concept of seed gets developed into this descendant of Judah who's the rightful king He's the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's the anointed king, the true one. And he's the Lord. He has authority. So all of these words, when we get to the Christmas announcement, they have a whole lot of meaning and weight. And that's why when the shepherds, they, they rejoice. They hear this pronouncement. They go, joy to the world, the Lord has come. They probably don't sing the whole song. Let earth receive. Yeah, I won't sing. Don't worry. But they're excited. God has fulfilled his promises. He's been faithful. We've been waiting generations. My grandparents wish they could. Their great-grandparents wish they could have seen this. And now they've seen it. God is here. Like we read in, in John 1. The word became flesh. God has come to his people. He has fulfilled his promises. The faithfulness of God has been proven. Jesus is here. 
And all of that's 100% true. Jesus has come. And it's a great thing. And everything about Jesus' life fulfilled exactly what it was supposed to do. But we're still waiting for something. We're still waiting for the fulfillment of all the promises. And that's what I was talking about at the beginning. We, we sit between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. Jesus' life on earth, like I said, accomplished everything it was supposed to. But we're still waiting. And we still wait because we look around in the world, uh, in our lives, in, uh, in our friends' lives, in our family members' lives, and lives of people we don't even know, and we still see sin and evil in the world. We still see nations in, invading other nations, and we still see injustice, and we still see slavery, and we still see exploitation of people, and we still see all this sin and evil in the world. Because God's not finished yet. We haven't got to the complete fulfillment of the promises yet. Which can be kind of, kind of an interesting place to be in. Because what it means is we should wait. Like, like the shepherds were waiting, like their great-grandparents were waiting, like the generations before them were waiting. There's a call to wait. But it's, it's not like a passive waiting. And we're going to get more into that. But uh, I'm really bad at waiting. Anybody else really bad at waiting? Yes, most people should raise their hands. Okay, so on Tuesday, I was uh, in the kitchen with Sean, the, the kids director here. He had some extra food, so we put food in the microwave. This is a perfect example of how bad we are at waiting, or how bad I am at waiting. You put it in for two minutes to heat it up, and you have a conversation, and you look back at the microwave, how has only 20 seconds gone by? Like, time slows down when you put something in the microwave. And you go, okay, okay, calm down, take a deep breath, look away again, and then there's still a minute 15. It's like an eternity to wait for two minutes just for something to heat up. Or uh, you ever text someone, and then you're just waiting, like, what, what are they doing? Do they hate me now? They're not going to text me back. <laughs> like, I've been forsaken by all of my friends because no one will text me back. So we're a, cult, we're a culture of instant gratification. We do not like waiting. I hate waiting, and most of you hate waiting. But it's interesting that that's what we're called to do in Scripture, is, is we're called to be a people characterized by waiting. But it's, again, it's not a passive waiting. It's a longing. It's an expectation forward towards the future. So when we talk about what is all— Okay, so Jesus is the promised guy from the Old Testament— which I love that stuff, and again, we, we could talk for days on it. If you want to talk for days on it, just send me an email, and we could talk for days on it. But what does it mean for us now, living in between those two comings? You know the word Advent, uh, which maybe you grew up in a house where they did the whole four candles thing. We never did that, but I saw people do it. Advent means coming, and so the season of Advent, which is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, is the celebration that Jesus has come, and we get to celebrate that, and there's a reason to celebrate that, but it's also a longing looking forward to and in preparation for Jesus' second coming. Like I was saying, I'm really bad at waiting, and I think most of us are really bad at waiting, because what I do is just kind of like default to pushing it to the side. Yeah, Jesus is coming, but I just, that's cool. I just kind of set it, set it to the side. And I was thinking about what are other things that we do that we wait for and prepare for and get ready for? I was trying to think of an analogy. 
And then I realized, I looked around my apartment, like Christmas. This is a perfect example. So, last weekend we went to go get the Christmas tree, and we brought the Christmas tree home, and we decorated the Christmas tree, and we were drinking, uh, people were drinking hot chocolate, and you listen to Christmas music, and there's there's Christmas thoughts, and you tell Christmas stories, and you get in the Christmas spirit, and you bring out the Christmas clothes, and you put the Christmas stuff on the mantle, and you start thinking about it, and you start planning for Christmas. And uh, I say, I'll say we decorated before Halloween for Christmas. We didn't decorate. My wife decorated for Christmas before Halloween. I love Christmas. I'm not knocking Christmas. But when I think about this example of how do we prepare for something, there's this glaring example. We, we so often prepare better for Christmas as an event every year than prepare for Jesus. Because we wait, we wait for Christmas. It's going to happen every year. It's always going to happen on the 25th. It's never going to change. But we, and we prepare for it every single year. And so the, the question is, how do we prepare for Jesus' Return. How do we prepare for Jesus coming again? And, and what I think it is, is just like the shepherds, we are called to be a people of expectation. What this text, or what this idea of a promise over thousands of years and generations, and if you read throughout the New Testament, there's this call towards the people of God to wait in expectation of Jesus' coming. So again, it's not a passive waiting. It's not like a I'm going to sit on my couch and twiddle my thumbs until Jesus returns. Or just, I'm going to hold on hope until Jesus comes back. It's not, it's not like that. It's, it's a, you actually have something to do to prepare. There's a participation. There's an expectation. And so we are a people of expectation because we're waiting for Jesus' Jesus's return. And so the question for us is, how are we doing at that? How are we doing it at expecting and participating and preparing for Jesus? Because Jesus tells all kinds of parables about a master who gives his servant something to do, and then he goes away for a long time, right? You can kind of think of those parables. Master gives the servant something to do, goes away for a while, and then comes back and finds his servants with different levels of readiness for his, the master's return. And by explanation, Jesus is the master and we're the servants. So we've been giving something to do. And so the question for each of us is how are we doing at that? Like, are we living a life that is characterized by giving away our time, our talent, our resources to love people? Are we characterized by a life transformed by the Spirit and changed in such a way that we look more and more like Jesus every day, every week, every month, every year? Are we learning to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, serve, lead, think, act like Jesus? Are we growing in those ways? And that's, that's just part of the question. Are we, are we characterized as people who are waiting for Jesus' return. And again, it's not, it's not a passive just waiting. There's a, there's a participation. There's an active aspect to it. And then, as we think about what we're supposed to do, we're both a people of expectation and we're a people of, of preparation. So if we think back to Genesis 3, and the idea of a cosmic battle. Jesus is the seed who's going to crush the head of the serpent. We get this picture of kind of a cosmic battle. And don't think like red guy in tights with a pitchfork who's like poking people. I know for a long time that's kind of what I thought of when I thought of Satan. But again, this, the scriptural image is like a serpent 
it's not a, a guy in tights and, and a pitchfork. It's, sometimes it's way more subtle than that. Sometimes it's really obvious, like people getting their heads cut off. That's evil. That's really obviously evil, but sometimes it's way more subtle. And sometimes it's stuff we don't even see, like obviously is evil, but deep down there's, there's evil behind it. And so we do live in a world, and, and I know it's easy to get goofy and it sounds kind of weird to talk about cosmic warfare, spiritual warfare, but that's the worldview of the Bible, the people in the Bible. There is something going on, unseen, that actually affects what's going on that's, that's seen. And so a guy named Paul, who's a leader in the early church, writes to uh, a church in Ephesus, which is in Turkey, and he explains to them what they're supposed to do in light of the fact that they live in a world characterized by spiritual warfare. And you've probably seen this or heard this, heard this but we're going to read it together because it's, it's helpful to understand what we're supposed to be doing as people in this season of expectation and waiting. So Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, this is Paul again writing to a church. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And then we'll skip forward to verse 18. In between is the, the description of what the armor of God is, you know, the helmet salvation, shield of faith, feet, you know? So you can go back and read Ephesians 6 if you want to want to fill in all that stuff, but what it's all driving to is verse 18. He says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. There's three sets of alls there. On all occasions with all kinds of prayers for all the Lord's people. So when, the, when Paul tells a church how to navigate the world of spiritual warfare, Notice what he tells them to do. He tells them, it's not against flesh and blood that you're struggling. It's not against physical things. But what you're called to do is put on a mindset. So it's not physical armor you're putting on, but it's a mindset. But the imagery of armor is really important because it's not easy to put on armor. It's heavy. It takes time. So it's not a super easy thing. It's not just like, oh, I mentally ascend to this idea and now, now I'm just set and ready to go. But there's... there's there's a participation, there's, a, there's an active work that goes along with putting on this mindset, which is characterized by uh, faith and salvation and righteousness and all these things. These are mindsets you put on so that you can pray. So when Paul tells them how to pray, he says, on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers, for all kinds of people. And again, it's, it's a mindset. There's, there's an active aspect. You've got to put on armor in order to do this. So we are both a people of expectation, but we are also a people of prayer. So we're a people of expectation, and we are a people of prayer. And I realize, and what I'm, part of what I'm trying to communicate is it's not, there's, there's two aspects of it. There's a longing, there's a waiting, and that's an attitude of the heart. And that's a posture. And that's the way that, that it's, a, it's an attitude that shapes our prayers. God, we long for the day, when there's going to be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. Moms won't get in car accidents. Brothers won't get cancer. Dads won't get infections. Nobody's knees are going to have to have surgery. That's a great day that we look forward to. 
And there's just an attitude of longing and hope for that day. But it's not passive. There's something to do in the meantime. And, and I know in talking about, uh, talking about Jesus' return or Jesus' coming in this age to come where, where God's going to do away with sin and death completely, he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes, that's the picture we get at the end of the Bible. And that's a great thing that I long for. And I notice that in my life, I'm trying to think of, okay, like, how's God impacted me with this? What I've noticed is something's, something's fundamentally changed in the way I pray. Because for the longest time, I would pray, God, please don't come back until I can get married, until I can have kids, and probably get to travel around a little bit, because I want to see places before you return. But that's not the right attitude. Because the more I hear about children having cancer, or the more that I see on TV about one country invading another country to exterminate a people group, or the more I hear about how followers of Jesus have to hide because they're afraid of getting killed, the more I hear about that, the more I pray, God, come. Put an end to the evil and the suffering and the pain in the world. God, come and judge evil and, and change this world. Because we look around and we see sin and we see brokenness. And, and there's a day coming when there won't be that. And we long for that. So I pray, God, please come now and do that. Establish your righteousness and justice in the world. And in the meantime, until you do, please use me in whatever way you see fit in establishing that rule and reign now. Because we do, we live between that Jesus came and started something and initiated something, and we look forward to something. And in the meantime, it pops up, that justice and righteousness, it pops up. And God, would you please use me in those ways that it pops up? And before we close, uh, one more thing, because there's this hot tub-looking thing over here. i got to explain it. It's, a it's for baptism. Are the lights flickering, or is it just me? The lights are flickering, okay. This is, a, this is a, a pool. It's got water in it for baptisms. Uh, there's a guy named Christopher Wright who's really, really smart and writes a whole lot of books. And in looking at the, the same verses that we looked at, he makes a statement about uh, God's attitude towards humanity. So we have a quote. The whole Bible could be portrayed as a very long answer to a very simple question. What can God do about the sin and rebellion of the human race? What can God do about the sin and rebellion of the, of the human race? So again, that starts in Genesis 3. God shows us what he wants to do. Okay, so humanity was made for relationship and for a purpose. And we kind of hand that away. But then God immediately starts this process of reversing the effects of the curse in Genesis 3. And then it explains more fully in Genesis 12. And then again in Genesis 49. And then again in, Ge in Numbers 24. And then again in Deuteronomy 18. And then again, again in Deuteronomy 34. So all these times, God shows us what he's going to do about the sin and rebellion of the human race. And baptism is a sign and a symbol of death to life. Of an old death that goes down an old death that was characterized by sin and rebellion, and a new life that's raised, now for relationship with God, and for that age to come. It's a new life raised with, with longing and hope for that, a new community, a new sense of mission and direction in life, 
a new spirit, a new heart, because God's changed you from the inside out. That's what baptism symbolizes. And the call of Jesus is for every single follower of Jesus to be baptized. So I know for me, my day was in February of 2010. The Super Bowl Sunday, and there was just something about that morning when someone, the guy got up and said, hey, we're doing baptisms this Sunday, we do it, do it first Sunday of the month, call us to be baptized. Something just went, I need to do it. I, I call myself a follower of Jesus, or, or I'm starting to walk down this path of following Jesus and, and learning how to live like him and love like him and serve like him and think like him, but I haven't done the water thing, and I know I need to. Because it's a symbol of me dying to the old me and being raised to a new life. And so if, if you're here, and either that, that thing of like, oh, I need to do that. Maybe that's happening right now. I know there's two people already who have said, hey, we want to be baptized today. So the invitation, you don't have to have an extra pair of clothes. We got towels for you. Don't worry, it's warm. If you, if you feel... Uh, the, the inkling of the Spirit saying, hey, you need to be baptized today. Come and talk to one of the leaders uh, when we change gears. I'm going to invite the band back forward. And what we're going to do is, because we talked about prayer, is we are going to end in prayer. And uh, prayer is, like Paul says, Paul describes it, um, on all occasions for all kinds of people, all kinds of prayers. So, Prayer takes many forms. Sometimes it's listening. Sometimes it's speaking. Sometimes it's the mixture of both. Sometimes it's in a group. Sometimes it's individually. Sometimes it's just praying through scripture. Sometimes it's reading the Psalms. Sometimes it's singing songs. These are all examples of what prayer is. Uh, And prayer is a conversation. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray together And there's no limits on this. So it's all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people on all kinds of occasions. And whatever is on your heart, maybe it's, hey God, do I need to be baptized? Maybe it's that and you ask God that and see what he says. And and maybe it's, God, show me how to wait and show me how to be a person of expectation. Would you show me what in my life needs to be changed or needs to be affected or needs to look differently differently? so that I can prepare for, so that I can expect, so that I can long for your coming. So I'm going to invite you all to stand with me, and we're going to listen together for a second, which just means quietly hearing, not, not listing off the things quite yet, but just kind of listening to God and what God might have to say to us. We're going to have music in the background, and people are going to shift around a little bit. That's okay. Just try and... Uh, Try and stay focused on on a conversation with God. Don't try and force it. It's okay if God doesn't say anything. Maybe God will say something. Maybe he won't. We're just going to pause for a second and pray together. God, we thank you for the truth uh, that is Jesus is the seed. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. God, we pause to listen from you. Would you speak to us?
God, you are our Father who is in heaven. And we know your name is holy. And we pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth, here and now. And God, we pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And would you interact with the prayers of your people worship you in spirit and truth, that we we might be transformed by your spirit, you might lead us and guide us, that you might be uh, the master, that you might show us the way to life. We thank you for the truth of the cross, which is your heel being struck by the snake. But God, we long for the day when you will fully uh, crush sin and evil. So God, would you you take this this next time of of worship and praise and um, be glorified in Jesus' name.